The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. For today, I want to take up um, the uh, recent uh, elections that uh, happened in the Midwest um, and to like, like look not just at the horse race results, but maybe have a larger picture of what's happening in the sort of region. Because I think that um, my colleague, Chris Lehman, who's our guest uh, this week, um, has a sort of interesting argument that there, we're seeing a partial progressive revival in the region. And this is really the sort of, you know, these are the sort of battleground states where um, uh, political power is decided in America, not just in presidential elections, but really um, in sort of, you know, in terms of the uh, Congress. Um, and uh, these are kind of like bellwether states and very important. And there's a larger story here um, of um, uh, places that, you know, had been once for a long time, very democratic uh, and then started turning uh, red. Um, and now there's a partial uh, pushback. Uh, it's not complete. It's not everywhere. Uh, but the, the tides do seem to be turning. And I think that is a very important story in American politics. So uh, first of all, Chris, uh, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you, Jade. It's always a pleasure. So um, what do we, um, I think for uh, uh, listeners, it might be good to get a sort of broader picture. Like, like what's the kind of story of these um, states? Uh, What are the states that we're talking about? And also like, um, you know, what's the history there where they used to be, you know, um, sort of uh, famously the blue wall, the sort of, you know, uh, uh, the buttress of democratic power and, and what happened? Right. Well, as as you noted, um, you know, the big caveat here is we're talking about a very small sample size in the 2023 election cycle where um, there was a race for uh, to replace a uh, Supreme Court justice seat in uh, Wisconsin, which has been the site of a long running reactionary uh, statewide political push. Um, and in Chicago, there was a really important mayoral race uh, where a very um, sort of traditional Rahm Emanuel-like um, neoliberal candidate named Paul Vallis uh, was sort of the anointed uh, establishment candidate. And um, Brandon Johnson, who is the left reform candidate, uh, won um, in an outcome that certainly shook the Chicago political establishment. Um, and, you know, the the backstory here, as you say, is the upper Midwest, as recently as Obama's 2012 um, campaign, was regarded as the blue firewall. Uh, these were the kind of states that the Democratic Party was count, counting on to deliver in a, a nationwide election contest. And... It worked <laughs> in 2012. Um, you may recall that I think it was when Ohio broke for Obama. Um, that's when the election was called in his favor. Um, and, you know, looking back, that's not that, you know, talking 11 years ago. Um, and if you look at the political history of the Midwest from that point on, it is this story of just uh, unbelievable kind of right-wing success after right-wing success. Uh, you know, Trump is largely credited with, you know, mobilizing the the fabled kind of uh, 
disaffected white working class in the region. Um, but in point of fact, uh, you know, Scott Walker had been um, dismantling the public sector union movement in Wisconsin. It was sort of his ideological mission coming into office. All these states have also been heavily gerrymandered, um, which is an outcome of uh, the disastrous 2010 off-year cycle um, that preceded Obama's re-election. Um, and so, you know, what we've seen in, you know, these former kind of upper Midwestern blue wall states like Wisconsin and Iowa and Michigan has been a, a pronounced turn rightward. Um, but what's happened, um, you know, and going back to 2022 in the midterms, um, Michigan ran the table. Um, Michigan is now an all blue state. All three senior executive um, officials in the state are Democrats and women. Um, and I think there is um, a couple of, I, I think a couple of things are at play here. One is um, the intensity of the reactionary movement as tends to be the case, uh, bred a lot of, um, sort of robust counter organizing on the left. So, you know, by targeting the labor movement in Wisconsin, for example, Scott Walker radicalized the union movement and um, they became very good at political organizing and very, you know, acting in their own self-interest, uh, trying to get um, Democrats elected. And, you know, that because of the gerrymandering um, impact, you had kind of this, mirage-like quality to Republican power in Wisconsin for the last several cycles, uh, Democrats have won pretty solid majorities in the popular vote, but because of the way that the state is districted, um, Republicans continue to hold, you know, outsized majorities in the legislature. Um, so when you get to a statewide race like this Supreme Court justice race, um, it's it's one of the occasions where the popular vote is <laughs> really decisive. In addition, obviously, um, a huge issue um, that's also changed politics it, since 2022 has been the Dobbs ruling. Um, and that was very much on the ballot in the Wisconsin race. Um, you know, the, the two main issues uh, in Wisconsin um, were the right to reproductive choice and the right to ballot access, the, the right to have your vote actually matter again. Um, the, the, Wisconsin, the other reason Wisconsin is important looms very large in 2024. Um, Ali Alexander, the sort of MAGA activist, confessed this on Twitter, is, uh, you know, if, if the Republicans are going to try to run, uh, you know, another kind of January 6th, you know, voter fraud, you know, fake allegations of voter fraud to undo the result, the Wisconsin Supreme Court could be very decisive um, in flipping uh, the results to the Republicans. Now with a majority of liberals on the court, that's not likely to happen. So, you know, like all of, you know, and, and these are all um, results determined by convulsions in local politics that have been, you know, following the lead of the the Trump movement on the right since 2016. Um, the I think the really important thing to flag in the case of Michigan is 
Michigan Republicans following the example of the Glenn Youngkin race in 2021, went all in on the um, moral panic about critical race theory, about parental choice in the schools, and it blew up in their face. Um, Tudor Dixon made it basically, she was the GOP gubernatorial nominee, and she made it basically her signature issue. She lost by 11 points uh, to Christine Whitmer. So that is, or Gretchen Whitmer, sorry. Um, that is a, a really significant result. And I think, you know, the GOP is in this position right now. You see it with Ron DeSantis's presidential run. They're going all in on these kind of culture war issues. Um, and the framing culture war is also a bit misleading, but maybe we could get to that later. But uh, um, the fact of the matter is these are not really strong popular issues and you yourself have written on, on how uh, the anti-trans uh, moral panic which they're also investing heavily in is not um, a tested winner in these kind of states I think there is you know I'm I'm not prone to any form of optimism <laughs> or uh, or really faith in human nature broadly speaking but I do think there is a a kind of inflection point where um, people see uh, political actors just behaving meanly, you know, just aggressively targeting outgroups and making, um, you know, kind of outlandish claims about their um, their nature that are really crude caricatures. And and you know, people have, especially I think in the kind of suburban swing districts that the Republicans need in order to win a lot of these races, people have very regular contact with their public schools. They're one of the, the places where you most deeply sort of engage with government. And they don't regard them, you know, they're flawed. They, they deliver, um, you know, perhaps uneven results, but they know that they're not hotbeds of Maoist, you know, cultural indoctrination. They just know that because they're parents, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also, I mean, like, I would add libraries to that, which is like... Yeah, which is another target in, in Missouri. Right. Part of, like, Republican so-called, you know, we'll call it culture war, but I mean, like, they're really targeting libraries. And I gotta say, like, you know, if you I just, like, you can a look at public opinion polls, but you can also just like be a person in the world and be aware that like you know people like libraries, right? And again, I think like libraries, they like librarians. I mean, that's considered like you know one of the you know most benign possible occupations that someone could have is to be a librarian. And so, no, I mean it is the, I mean. It's perhaps worth like, you know, like on a broader politics thing, like maybe thinking about where the culture wars work and where they don't. Because I think actually in some ways the um, this upper Midwest is an interesting test case, because I do think um, that, uh, you know, things like Dobbs, trans, uh, the war on schools and libraries, um, they're especially unpopular there. They might be a little bit more, you know, it's more of a wash in the, obviously the red states and in the South. But I think part of the issue is just the nature of the population that um, there's a lot of like very, you know, secular um, uh, white non-college pe uh, people there. And these are the people that like went for Trump uh, in 2016 and they partially went for him uh, because, you know, he had the sort of you know, claim that he'll, like, you know, break with the consensus, the Washington consensus on neoliberalism and, and NAFTA and, you know, like go after these trade agreements, which they knew would hurt them. 
um, right. and that Hillary Clinton wouldn't. And also, you know, like he seemed like a different sort of Republican. Like he seemed like, you know, right. like a guy who you know, probably doesn't care a lot about, you know, like gay issues one way or the other. You know, yeah, probably yeah. very libertarian, you know, quite possibly has paid for abortions himself. <laughs> you know, like, you know, no, his or is uh, his whole sort of yeah. like happy to you know hang out with like, you know, play his his libertinism in some ways like perhaps worked as an advantage for those kind of uh, voters in the sense that, oh, you know, like this is, you know, he's not going to be like, you know, trying to push the Bible down my throat, right? Like he's, he's a, he's a guy. Right. Um, he barely knows how to hold the Bible as we saw. In the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in, some ways, in some ways, I mean, he was able to, like the 2016 thing, Trump was really able to play on both sides because he had his own, you know, sort of, um, libertinism and then he was uh had mike pence you know who's the complete opposite you know who's yeah. very clearly like you know uh uh visibly homophobic you know uncomfortable even with like you know women in the workplace and uh, and, uh sure. and so so you know you could read into the campaign whatever you wanted the evangelicals read into him I think quite correct. They were the sounder judges of these things. They they read that you know Trump would give them what they want. Uh, oh, yeah, but, no, uh, and I yeah, I, I think actually Trump's hypocrisy was an asset. Like you know, yeah. people people have understood you know well beyond his political career that he's a liar. You know, yeah. people watched The Apprentice for ten years, right? Yeah. And um, you know, they they knew he wasn't. Yeah, his adherence to a lot of these issues was not the kind of. Um, rigid moral stance that the Mike Pence's of the world had staked out. I think the other thing I wanted to flag when we were talking about the firewall, too, is the reason that there was a firewall at all um, was that Barack Obama bailed out the auto industry um, in 20, uh, 2009. Yeah. And that was a huge issue. It actually was a, a very strong contrast with Mitt Romney, who famously published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal just arguing that, or the New York Times rather, that uh, arguing that, you know, it's a, a sad thing, but we have to let the auto industry basically burn to the ground. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, and, and, you know, like the traditional position of a, you know, of a private equity capitalist, which Mitt Romney was. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, I know. No, Mitt Romney's whole persona, which, you know, was not just something Obama raised, but which, you know, Newt Gingrich raised and, yeah, you know, um, like a very. Huckabee famously said, you know, he's the he's the kind of guy who comes into your um workplace locker room and fires you when Bain comes to town you know like that's, that's a very powerful attack which is effective um yeah. and, and and does kind of indicate yeah the sort of the, you know the salience of these kind of uh if you have um you know economic uh, uh if the democrats have an advantage on the economic populism uh right. then the sort of you know social issues become um uh, 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 less salient, and um, right. so in in some ways, uh, but I also think you know, like the way as you mentioned, there's the meanness of this, and also you know, like things like Dobbs. Um, I, I don't think people, you know, quite. Um, it seems like like particular Dobbs, and I think also the attack on trans people, maybe less saliently because it's less encountered in in people's uh, many people's lives. But certainly with, with Dobbs, you know, you have like a sort of so called cultural issue that's actually like you know um, impinges on daily life in a very real way, right? Yeah. Like, and you know, you can kind of see this with 
um, how some Republicans are saying, well, we should be talking less about abortion and let's move on from abortion. But like, I got to tell you, like, you know, like men and women are having sex every day. Like women have periods or fail to have periods, you know, like once a month. And these are like, you know, these issues of like, you know, when you're dealing with people in their, you know, ages of fertility, um, you know, they just like impinge on like, you know, like medical decisions that people like make as a part of their regular course of their life. And to, yeah. so, 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 so to have an issue like that, um, and unless you have like, you know, as you have in some place in the South, a very wide, you know, um, contingent of evangelicals, um, uh, you know, who can act as a, as a uh, power base, you know, like w w where the evangelicals might be a bit weaker, then this really, you know, works against you. I think. Like, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing um, to note, again, to return to Iowa, which is actually my home state, um, around uh, during the, the first Obama administration, Iowa became the first state under Obergefell to legalize gay marriage. <laughs> like, yeah. um, there was a real, and there was a lot of, you know, Republicans supported it at, at that point. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm about, you know, it, it would help the Iowan economy by making it a, a wedding destination for gay couples, but it was also, you know, a sense that this was a, a, a kind of, after all the, you know, 2004 effort to demagogue the issue of gay marriage, it suddenly just didn't cut anymore as a culture issue, which is the other thing, speaking of history, to kind of recall <laughs> about yeah. you know, these these things are opportunistically opportunistically ginned up to stimulate activism in the base and voter turnout in general elections, and then they're discarded. Um, you know, no yeah, one. No, no. One sees that really with the, especially with the trans issue, where it's like it's actually you know you can actually like look at the funding and the activism, and it's pretty exactly when marriage equality became a kind of settled issue. Yeah. Not just because yeah. of the law, but because of like changes in public attitude uh, that suddenly like, you know, like you have these characters who are like looking around for another issue. Uh, and actually, my favorite example of this is like the big group. They really um, uh, I forget the exact name, but uh, it, that goes after trans issues and funds it used to be um, a gold bug group. Like their big issue used to be uh, like yes. the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> like that, then, that didn't you, work. Let's let's find like let's okay so you know like gold standards not working they might actually go back to gold standard I think now, yeah the gold standard the, is sort of in the DNA of of the modern right I mean yeah so yeah so so I I think that the uh, um yeah there is an element of opportunism there because in a lot of ways I mean you know like especially with the trans issue like this actually used to be like less controversial than like marriage equality uh and you know like especially you know like things that were completely uncontroversial like you know like uh drag shows which were like usually the way in which you know um uh uh straight culture inter had its you know closest interface with like uh, right. queer culture um you know and this was a way which you know like republican frat boy jocks could like experiment I mean, a little. yeah now i mean there are photos of rudy giuliani in drag i mean that's it, and, that's it. i mean yeah. if you're of a certain age you know milton milton burl would dress and drag every episode of his variety show this was like could not be more white bread america that's it, that's it. yeah I, so, so it, it seems like a very um 
uh, peculiar thing. But in any case, so so we, what we're seeing in sort of you know Michigan and Wisconsin is a sort of um, you know very successful statewide efforts. You know, like uh, mm-hmm. facing still, I think the headwinds of some gerrymandering uh in wisconsin um uh as you mentioned like you know chicago also very interesting uh not a statewide race but like within the city itself just in terms of um uh a real victory for the left in a period where after a period in which you know the sort of uh establishment um had long had these kind of like you know neoliberal mayors right a, uh, a long stranglehold on, on yeah, city politics yeah and, and it's in some ways i mean like you know, uh, Johnson's win. I mean, like you one has to maybe go back to Harold Washington, like yeah. for like yeah. like a, a victory of real like um, yeah, um, real progressive coalition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. and even, what's even more interesting is I think, um, unlike the case with the Washington movement, which was a lot of disparate sort of social movements moving into a coalition. The kind of bedrock of the Jackson victory appears to have been the Chicago Teachers Union, which has yeah. been involved in a lot of high, high profile labor actions and strikes over um, both the uh, Rahm Emanuel and, and Lightfoot administrations. Um, so it's kind of like in Chicago, you have this battle tested union infrastructure that knows what's coming, <laughs> that knows, you know, there's going to be this powerful, well-funded um, movement to dislodge them from power, to install an obliging neoliberal business-friendly leader, and they fought back uh, vigorously. I think that's a really important um, lesson in both of these races. The union politics were, I I don't think either of the the wins happen without um, a really um, engaged and organized um, grassroots union movement. Right. And uh, th- that sort of fits in with the larger story we've been kind of trying to tell, because, you know, like the sort of uh, retreat uh, in the Midwest really happened. Uh, you know, like I, th- I think 2010 was the kind of, you know, pivotal date. It happened to be um, an off year, you know, like um, midterm during a deep recession. Right. But the movement was ascendant. And, uh... Yeah. But again, I think, you know, one shouldn't let Obama and his people off. I mean, I think the thing not, with not at all. I mean, very crucial is that he was willing to organize for his presidential races, but not for like the midterms, and not uh, uh, and especially in 2010, like there was like not a lot of effort. Um, and, no, and, and significantly, part you know, Obama, um, uh, the sort of um, uh, coalition that they had built up, and but also that created an opportunity for the right. And for especially the sort of Koch brothers with like, you know, Alec and, you know, like, so what happened was a real attempt this, you know, systematically turn these bluish states um, red with a focus on dismantling the power of unions uh, and using gerrymandering to like create these kind of like permanent um, uh, electoral victories, even if you don't have popular command. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, what's really optimistic is that, you know, one had both a pushback from this from the unions and from organizing and especially like in you know wisconsin like really like mm-hmm. you know like a, the emergence of a really powerful democratic party there um uh and that it's it's man it's it seems to be finding its way to dismantle that operation like th- that that is the kind of 
to the story there. Yeah, I, I think it's also you know, important to note in Michigan, prior to uh, the Democrats running the table, there was a um, referendum vote to um, basically redraw districts with a neutral state commission and undo a lot of the prior gerrymandering. That was absolutely critical to the Michigan victories in 2022. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, going back to 2010, you, you mentioned that the Democrats were kind of um, on their heels and not really focused. Uh, the Republicans were super focused. They instituted something called Operation Red Map, which was a wall-to-wall bid to take take over state legislatures to redraw districts. A lot of the districts, um, like famously Mark Meadows's district, um, was drawn up in the wake of Operation Red Mac. It didn't previously exist. Um, <laughs> it created a monster in this case, and there are lots of other monsters. You know, um, I've been reporting recently and editing pieces out of Tennessee, um, and it's exactly the same story. You know, Tennessee has uh, this. Re- Republican supermajority that is entirely uh, insulated from any, you know, that's why they they did the vote to expel the lawmakers, the black lawmakers, is they understood they aren't going to suffer any consequences in their home districts. Um, so again, um, it's it's a tall order. You have to both, you know, be super organized and disciplined in terms of um, getting your own forces together, and you have to also, you know, it's absolutely essential to remake the rules because as the returns in Wisconsin have shown again and again, you can run up de- democratic majorities and it just doesn't matter if you have a state that's, you know, so rigidly gerrymandered. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, but, you know, the Republicans have found a way to really uh, aid this process. They have got got themselves behind these massively unpopular initiatives uh-huh. like obviously the the Dobbs decision like the you know um broader um assault on worker rights that's happening across the country and in you know especially in these um you know midwestern states that were formerly the industrial heartland so um, there is opportunity here, uh, but it it requires a lot of you know focus and discipline that the Democrats did not have in 2010 and certainly did not have in 2016. So yeah, yeah, and so, well, I mean, I I, I think that uh, uh, one aspect of this is that the the sort of resistance has really been coming you know, from the grassroots. Like you're you're seeing a lot of sort of you know very all uh, this like national money. Some of these races become national and they draw attention and they get a lot of money, which is also good because they need that. But I mean, like the, the, you do actually see a lot of people on the ground um, uh, organizing. Um, the other thing is, I, I mean, not to like have a totally optimistic story. Like there are places that are like where uh, <laughs> still like uh, either, you know, still keep going red uh, or, you know, like are going to be like contested for a while um, uh, or, are, you know, like where the Democrats face a steep battle. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, Iowa and Ohio. Yeah. Um, and Iowa, I mean, to me, okay, the two things that, like, in retrospect, like, seem kind of amazing is one that is Obama won Indiana in 2008, 
which is just like like you know <laughs> it's mind-boggling yeah, no. uh, you know this is like um uh, you know historically the clanniest place uh in america <laughs> and, yeah, uh, sure. uh and but, but the other one is like even i think almost equally astonishing is that he won iowa like not That's just fun. in 2008 yeah. but 2012 um yeah. And like, like, so Iowa is like, you know, like, and, and yeah, yeah, I should tell listeners, yeah, you're from there. So can, like, what's the matter with Iowa? <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's a whole separate podcast, <laughs> but for uh, a pod, well, podcast probably. Um, but, you know, they, Iowa was, um, in the whole time I was growing up, first of all, Iowa always had sort of the most conservative and the most liberal members of the Senate um, in the country, really. We had Tom Harkin and Chuck, Chuck Grassley before that, John Culver and um, uh, Roger Jepson, who was just awful Reaganite. And it goes way back. So that that is a that tells you there's a a kind of uh, animated populist tradition that both parties are able to um, capitalize on. And I think um, during you know the time I was growing up, you know, it's funny. My the first district in Iowa, first congressman I remember having was Ed Mesvinsky, who was a crony of the Clintons, who eventually wound up in jail on um, shady financial charges. And his successor was Jim Leach, the, the moderate Republican who famously would always wear a cardigan and um, seemed very sensible. Um, and those figures are just gone. <laughs> like, um, and now Iowa, um, you know, it is interesting. You know, I mentioned the Obergefell thing, and it did break for Obama um, both in 2008 and 2012. I think there was, you know, as we've been saying, there was a, a kind of economic populism that Obama effectively appealed to in the wake of the 2008 meltdown. Um, he didn't deliver at, at a policy level once he gained an office, but in the 2012 cycle, as we've been saying, he was he had the best possible opponent in Mitt Romney, someone who was out of touch and you know uninterested really in in the plight of working Americans. Um, so I think you know come the 2016 cycle, you know there is frustration with the record of the Obama administration on these sort of base baseline um economic populist issues and there's a weak candidate in hillary clinton who um you know decides not to commit critical resources to the upper midwest in the heat of the race but more importantly didn't really have um, a clear or coherent message um to this sort you know since mythologized um but you know genuine working class base in the midwest and that was, as we've been saying, Trump's moment of opportunity. Uh, I don't think Trump could have won against anyone other than Hillary Clinton. We sort of ran that experiment in 2020, and he lost, no matter what he says. Um, and, you know, and I, it's worth noting that Biden actually has effectively um, appealed and implemented, you know, what is in many ways an economic populist um, policy agenda the most to my surprise <laughs> in many ways uh, yeah 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 and, and i mean in on a broad variety of fronts i mean i think i think since we've uh, mentioned unions you know throughout this conversation uh you know like biden is the most you know union friendly 
administration uh, since and, uh, Lyndon yeah. Johnson, I would probably say. Uh, yeah. no, and, and, you know, speaking of that, this is, I'm, I'll go in uh, a little into personal autobiography here, but, uh, you know, I grew up on a block where I, I would say at least three quarters of the households had families who worked at one of the major farm implement um, factories that the Quad Cities where I grew up um, harbored. And they all had, you know, they could afford a mortgage, they could afford a pension, they could afford to send their kids to college. Um, in the wake of the farm crisis of the 80s, there was massive capital flight. Um, you know, uh, Caterpillar, which was a major employer, just shut down completely. So did International Harvester. John Deere, which is the sort of flagship um, manufacturer in the um, area, has a very skeletal presence. It's the only one really left now. So all of that, that kind of surrounding job security and pensions and college funds evaporated. And Davenport became uh, the first city on the uh, Mississippi River to introduce riverboat gambling. That was their effort to recoup, you know, this massive industrial base. Um, and that brought in all the kind of associated social ills we all know, right? They're rising alcoholism, rising suicide rates, indebtedness. So it is, um, you know, kind of, it became a Petri dish that um, just was the model kind of Trump um, constituency. Um, these yeah. are downwardly mobile, um, tend not to be college educated, white working class community that went all in um, for Trump. Um, and, you know, the, it's interesting, you know, um, Iowa is very white, um, but I, I knew very few sort of bone deep racists growing up. And I feel like Trump was able to um, camouflage the, the racist character of his appeal in, in this, you know, um, a, attack on trade agreements and a pledge to bring back, you know, the, the manufacturing jobs. But he also, you know, said, in essence, here's here's an outgroup you can blame for your troubles, and I will I will sanction that. I will foment um, anti-immigrant, anti-black um, sentiment, and it, it caught on. Um, and it's it's very heartbreaking if, <laughs> like me, you grew up someplace like that and you see the community just transform itself into something that is is really dangerous. Um, and and again, it's important to note um, the Democrats, in my view, still don't still don't have a really good answer. Um, they're they're not um, mobilizing um, strongly behind um, you know the the honorable strides that the Biden administration has made. So it's going to be you know um, even though we have these encouraging results, you know going to election cycles now, if you include 2022, um, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, no, a lot of work to be done. And in fact, I'll just, you know, to fully paint the picture of uh, Iowa, I uh, because it's just some breaking news from like overnight, uh, <laughs> you know, like not only is it like they don't have the union jobs that they have now, but, you know, like the um, Iowa legislature just as, you know, effectively like um, legalized like more forms of child labor because, you know, like in a lot of these um, uh, industries where they do not, uh, uh, they still have like meat packing, 
right. you know, like they're not the companies aren't willing to pay, you know, like living wages, and they're reliant not just on um, um, undocumented immigrants, but increasingly uh, right. because of the, the the way that the immigration system is set up, the children, you know, like you know, very small. No, children, it is. It is just like, like you know, like ages like ten, eleven, and twelve. Like, yeah, like, it, it is unbelievably cruel and um, disastrous. Um, and again, you know, Iowa now is, um, you know, another really gerrymandered state. And it has, there is a feature in my now hometown paper, The Washington Post, a couple of weeks ago about how Iowa has become the, quote, Florida of the North, um, yeah, yeah. which is to say they're in full DeSantis mode there. So. Yeah. But it, I mean, this sort of stuff does seem to me to introduce, like you know, like again, a way of uh, maybe uh, bringing the economic issue to salience. Like you know, if, if one did want to, like say, you know, Republicans are the party of child labor, to say you know, like you know, like the, 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 the you know, like Trump did not bring back those jobs, and more to the point, you know, like the the local Trumps. Yeah, exactly. In addition to which, I you know, we you were speaking of libertarianism earlier. I'm I was actually having. Um, drinks with a conservative um, journalist friend of mine. And I, I sort of said to him, like, if I were running messaging for Democrats right now, I would say, like, we are the party that trusts you with library books and trusts you with your own body. <laughs> like, these are just like basic American freedoms that the other side is coming to take away. We really need to flip the scripts, um, you know, with, yeah. with all the kind of you know, BS charges about cancel culture and wokeness and whatever, like, this is the repression, this is the censorship. Um, and yeah, it's no, absolutely. our <laughs> fundamental rights. Um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I you know, I absolutely, yeah. So, um, so, so, uh, I think we've had a you know good series of some some of, some of the hopeful signs at least uh, yeah. that are happening, as well as uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, Iowa is the sort of dystopian yeah. counterexample of uh, wh where one does not wish the United States to go. And, uh, yes, <laughs> so, but uh, so uh, so uh, again, uh, uh, thanks, uh, Chris, for uh, being on. I, I think this is very uh, enlightening. Great. Thank you for having me, Jade. Always a pleasure.